Bill Cage was a very busy man, and uh, he hadn't had a chance to spend much time with his two daughters, Kristen and Madison. Kristen was six, and Madison was four. Finally, he got a day off, and he got up early and got the girls up, and he was having a little Bible story with them and reading, and he began by apologizing that he hadn't had time to spend with them much. He said, you know, uh, uh, I, just, I just haven't had the time. He said, and, and we, can, we can have some quality time, though we may not be able to have a quantity of time. And he looked at the little girls and seeing that they really didn't understand quality and quantity, he said to them, he said, you know, quality means that it's really good time, that we have a good time together. Quantity means that there's a whole lot of it, that we spend a lot of time together. Would you rather have quality time or quantity time? And the oldest little girl, Christian, age six, said, I want quality time and a whole bunch of it. And, you know, that's what it takes to build a relationship is quality time and quantity time. Jesus calls us into a relationship. He calls us to be part of his family and, and to join in following him and, and serving him and be his disciple. He wants to be in a relationship with us. And yes, he wants quantity time and he wants quality time. Now, we started this series engaged at the beginning of the year and a couple of weeks ago, well, I guess last week, we handed out this brochure two weeks ago. It's called Engage, and we, we've been focusing on this brochure. We're on the inside of it. There are three panels that say Engage Jesus, Engage Bristol, and Engage the Next Generation. And that's our plan uh, for the next three years to really focus on those areas. Each of those panels has three words after an introductory remark. And today we're looking at the together one. This is what it says. Together. Discipleship does not happen alone. Jesus placed an emphasis on relationships with God and with others. That means we need to walk with each other in our spiritual journey. This is why we will engage Jesus together. Today we're going to think about that word together and what that means as a church. Now, why is it important to engage Jesus together? I really want you to think about that today. Why is that important? You know, Jesus has, has uh, uh, if we believe in him, if we really believe in him, we will believe his word. We will believe the things that he taught. And one of the things that he taught is that we are to be part of the church. The church is his body. It, it, it's not an individual thing, it's a group thing. It's a thing we do together. We engage the church. We engage other people. Uh, Jesus said God's most important commandment was to love God, but also to love others, to love our neighbor. And so we do that. We can't do that alone. Love is not something you do from a distance. It's something that you do in a group, that you do with each other. And God has called us to love one another. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles today to Hebrews chapter 10. This is going to be the focus. We're going to look at verses 19 through 25. Now the book of Hebrews was really written to, uh, we're not sure exactly where they were, but it was a group of Christians 
who were reverting back to the old Jewish ways. They were slipping away from faith in Christ. And they were getting back into the rituals and the works of Judaism. Uh, and the theme of this book is to remind them of the supremacy of Christ. And that he is the absolute revealer and mediator of God's grace. And this book reminds us that there's no other way to find the Father except through Jesus Christ. Tells us in this book that Christ is the high priest and he is the sacrifice. He died to make atonement for our sins and he is the only way to the right relationship with God. Now, the recipients of this letter apparently were discounting the importance of Jesus Christ. And they were slipping away from their faith. Or maybe some of them never really had a faith in Jesus. They were just sort of going through the motions. But he's calling them to remember who Christ is. Let's read this passage in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to start at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place through the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance of faith that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, or, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So there's a lot in there. And we're going to break this passage down today. Let's look back again at the first part, the first three verses. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body since we have a great high priest over the house of God let's think about this for just a minute you see what it's telling us is that through Jesus we can enter the presence of God now to understand this you have to understand the Old Testament and you have to understand the, the rituals and the ceremonies that they had. At the temple where they worshipped, they were to bring sacrifices, to offer these sacrifices when they sinned, to make atonement for their sins. But once a year, they had what is called the Day of Atonement. Maybe there was a sin that somebody forgot, and there were sins that the nation committed, and, and the priest would go into the inner part of the temple, there's there the holy place, and inside the holy place, there was the holy of holies, or the most holy place. It was separated by a curtain. And behind that curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant had uh, some stuff in it, the Ten Commandments, and, and I think a jar of manna, and Aaron's staff. And, and, but they, they believed this was at least symbolic of the dwelling place of God. He was on the top of that Ark of the Covenant, this box that was overlaid with gold. It's very beautiful to read the description of it. But they felt that that was the dwelling place of God. And the priest would sacrifice a lamb 
and he would go in and drop some of the blood of the lamb on that top part of that and called the mercy seat. And that would make atonement for the sins of Israel. Nobody could go into that part except the high priest. When Jesus was crucified, the Bible tells us that that curtain was torn in two. It was open. Now we all have access to God. We don't have to go through a priest except our high priest, who is Jesus Christ. So you've got to understand, Jesus enables us to enter the presence of God. This text tells us his body was that curtain, that, that dividing point. And through Jesus, we are now able to enter the presence of God. Now, I want you to notice something else about this passage as we go forward. We are encouraged here to engage Jesus three ways. There are three times in this passage where it says, let us, L-E-T-U-S. Just to remind you of that, I brought ahead a lettuce up here today. Uh, it's spelled a little different. This kind of lettuce is spelled L-E-T-T-U-C-E. But let us, he says. So every time you eat a salad or you eat a hamburger or a chicken sandwich with lettuce on it, you'll remember, hey, I'm part of the church. I need to be together with my people. So remember this head of lettuce. And the first thing that it says talks about drawing near to God. Read with me verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So, drawing near with a sincere heart. That's one of the things that we are to do together with the church. There's no doubt that a sincere heart, that is a sincere faith in Jesus, will believe that he died for our sins. And that he's the only way to God. And, you know, it's interesting to think about the fact somebody had to die to make atonement for your sins. That death was Jesus. And it was once for all people. We don't have to make an animal sacrifice every time we commit a sin anymore. We have faith in Jesus. And that covers us for, for our current sins, for our future sins, for our past sins. We are covered. But when you think about that, that really should, should touch your heart that somebody was willing to die for you. It should really have an impact on you and that somebody needed to die for you to cover your sins. That should bring you to a point of godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, the Bible says, leads to repentance. And when we come to that point, we know something's got to happen with my heart. My heart's got to be made clean because it's dirty from the sin I've had in my life. So it talks here about having your heart sprinkled. It's talking about the blood of Jesus. Symbolically, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, your heart is sprinkled with the blood of Jesus to cleanse it. It also talks about, uh, it talks there about uh, cleansing us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. No doubt that's a reference to baptism. You know, in Acts 2.38, it 
when Peter preached to the people and they said, what must we do? They believed and Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. You know, we, we, baptism is symbolic of the old sinful person dying and coming up out of that water, restored to a new life. You know, when, we ha when that happens, we receive the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit helps us grow to spiritual maturity. So we want to draw near to God because of what He's done for us. How do we draw near to God? Well, there are a number of ways you do that. We do that in worship here together. Hopefully, as you sang these songs, you were thinking about God. You were drawing near to God. When we read the Word and study the Word, hopefully you're drawing near to God. Hopefully you will take the Word and read it sometimes on your own and have your own devotional time. I would hope that we would have one, uh, at least strive to have a devotional time every day where we get into the Word and we meditate on it and we spend time in prayer. We draw near to God when we come together to fellowship together in His name. Or when we go and do a service project for Him. You know, I, I, I pray. And one of the things that we want to do as a church this year is together we want to draw closer to God in all that we do. That, that happens really well in smaller groups, which we're going to improve our small groups this year. and Hopefully we're going to have more and more of those small groups. Move on now and look at verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. So we want to hold to the hope. Let us hold to the hope. Hold unswervingly to the hope we have in him. I, I like that word unswervingly. You don't use that every day, do you? Anybody ever use the word unswervingly? Probably not, but it's a word that the Apostle Paul chose what does it mean? When you swerve, you're going this way and that way. You're, you're going every which way. But he says unswervingly. That is a, a, a laser focus. We are laser focused on the hope that we find in Jesus Christ. You know, that's our theme. Hope changes everything, right? And we believe that that hope in Jesus can change people's lives. And he says, hold on to that. I go back to that word confidence in verse 19. We have confidence in the hope that there is in Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible says in 1 John 5, 13, these things are written to you that you might know that you have eternal life. And if we really have that hope in Jesus, you know, that hope is, is not a negative word. Some people see hope as a negative word. Uh, you, you ever hear anybody say, well, I bought a lottery ticket today. I hope I'm going to win the money. You hope? You don't sound very confident to me. Uh, you know, nobody goes out and writes a million-dollar check and then says, I'm going to buy a lottery ticket to cover the check, and I hope I'm going to win. We just don't do that. But this hope, this biblical hope, this is a confident expectation of what we will receive through our faith in Jesus Christ. You know why we can be confident? Because... People saw Jesus risen from the dead. And people have experienced his work in their life. And so we look forward. You know, I love, uh, flip over in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. 
first few verses there. I love this passage of Scripture. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great, great cloud of witness, that is, those listed in chapter 11, the people of faith that have been recorded throughout the Bible, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know, you think about Jesus. Jesus knew he was going to die on a cross, yet he didn't waver. He had his eyes fixed on God, and he knew what God's plan was, and he was not one bit afraid. And he went to that cross and died to save us from our sins because he knew that his death was temporary, that he would be resurrected, and he knew the impact that he was going to have because he held on to his hope in what God would do. We too should hold on to that hope because we know what God is going to do in our lives. And we don't hold on to keep it to ourselves. We hold on because we believe, but we also want to share that with others. And that takes us to verse 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So we're working to, on spurring one another to love and good deeds. One another. You can't do that by yourself. You have to do that together with people. That's our word today is together. It says consider how we can spur. It's another word. You know, we may use that occasionally, but we don't use it often. Uh, it's kind of a negative word, really. It has to do with irritation or exasperation. But here it's used in a good sense of a, of a strong pushing somebody. You know, I used to have horses, and occasionally I would ride in a horse show, and I would put spurs on my boots. Any, anybody still have spurs to wear on your boots? Here's a picture of a spur on a boot. They're sharp things. You can sort of dig that in the side of a horse and he'll get up and move a little faster. Uh, I always found if I dug in real hard, they would buck me off. But you can nudge them a little bit. It's kind of the sense that Paul's giving that we're going to push each other. We're going to push one another toward love and good deeds. How, how do you push somebody toward love and good deeds? You know, you can't point your finger and say, say you know, Ricky Tallman, you be more loving. That's just probably not going to work. We do it by example because we are loving and because we are doing good deeds. And it's contagious when you do that. And other people see us loving and see the good deeds. And especially people outside the church, when we do that, they take notice that we're different, that we care. And this love is, is that agape love that the Bible talks about. That, that kind of love that that is not a selfish kind of love. It doesn't love for what it can get. It loves for what it can give. And it shows other people that you care. And it's not based on a feeling. It's based on, on a decision that we make to love others, 
because that's what God calls us to do. And that's how we're going to bring them into the kingdom. And we do good deeds for others. You know, I was reminded this week of some of the good deeds that the church has done in the past. This article that I read said, two great teachings of Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself, and greater love has no one than this, that he should lay down his life for his friend. And we talk about those, but do we do them? You know, I heard about the lady that says her husband always says uh, he will die for her, but he never does it. You know, through the years, though, the church has put its life on the line to help people, especially back in ancient times when there were plagues and, and all sorts of problems. All historians attest that Europe's first hospitals were built by early Christians to provide care during times of plagues. Uh, the Antoine Plague of the second century, they estimated it killed, killed 25% of the Roman Empire. Yet Christians cared for victims. They even told victims that it's not because of various angry gods, it's because the people of this world have rejected the one true God. And if you turn to Him, that God is going to help to save you from this. Uh, during another plague in the 4th century, uh, pagan Roman Emperor Julian complained about the Galileans, the followers of Christ, that they were taking care of people who did not even agree with their beliefs. Church historian Pontius wrote that Christians ensured that good was done to all men, not merely the household of faith. Religious demographer and sociologist Rodney Stark states that there's a lot of evidence that suggests that the cities with Christian communities, that in those cities during the plagues, the death rate was about half of what it was in cities where there were not Christians. You see, the Christians put their lives on the line. Martin Luther, the great theologian, uh, was, was in Wittenberg, Germany in 1527 when a plague, the bubonic plague, hit. And he didn't flee. He stayed to minister to his fellow citizens. In fact, he wrote a track that was circulated and the title of it was Whether Christians Should Flee the Plague. Here's what Luther wrote. We die at our post. Christian doctors cannot abandon their hospitals. Christian governors cannot flee their districts. Christian pastors cannot abandon their co congregations. The plague does not dissolve our duties. It turns them to crosses on which we must be prepared to die. Now, we're probably not going to build any hospitals. But there are things that we can do in our communities. And we're looking for more and more ways because this year we're going to begin to get in our community and do things that impact that community, to do things that help our community. We're even planning to have some days, uh, we don't know exactly what we're going to call them, but they'll probably be called something like Mission of Hope Days. And that's where we as a whole church will go out and have an impact on something in our community. We will go out on that day and serve and do projects. And we want people in our church to do projects, to serve others. Maybe your small group, maybe your women's group will find ways to reach out in the community and show hope to a community 
and to a people that might not otherwise find that hope. Well, we do all this in light of verse 25. Not giving up the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You know, the indication is that we're going to do all this together. That we're going to do it together. I'm very much afraid that in the modern church there's becoming this attitude that uh, I got saved years ago, I don't need to go to church. I'm saved. Me and Jesus, we tie, so I don't need to be part of the church. Or there's an attitude that, well, I'll do my duty, I'll show up at the church, but I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to show up. And that's not what the Bible teaches. And I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but Christ calls us to be his followers. And Christ got out in the community. And he brought with him his group, his disciples that followed him to go and serve together and reach the community. And when he left, they were sent to do more of that. He served. In fact, Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. He lived the kind of life, the kind of life that drawed near to God, that showed hope to the community, that that loved and did good deeds for the community. Well, here's our connection. Christian faith is not about a one-time decision or a Lone Ranger experience but rather a journey of a lifetime together with Christ and other believers. You know, I want you to think about that. That's kind of long. Christian faith is not about a one-time decision. Yeah, maybe you got saved when you were 13 years old. That doesn't mean that you're not part of the church. In fact, if you're truly saved, you're part of the body of Christ. You should join with the body of Christ and be part of what the body of Christ is doing. So it's not a one-time decision. It's not a Lone Ranger experience where you say, well, there's nothing but hypocrites in the church. I'm going to stay and do my thing because I'm, I'm close to God on my own. Well, if the church is so bad then, and you're so good, then you ought to be in there helping the church be better. You ought, to, you ought to come together and be part of the experience because this thing we call Christian faith, it's about a journey. It's about a journey of a lifetime following Jesus and serving Jesus, and doing our part. You know, the Bible says the church is the body of Christ, and each of us is a part of it. We each have our place to serve and do good deeds and love other people, and we do it all for His glory. There was a group of tourists, Christian tourists, they were visiting uh, Rome, and they went to one of the basilicas there, Uh, It's a fancy name for a church, an an older church. And as they went to this basilica, the bus pulled up in front of it and dropped them off. There was a big group of people, 15 or so, and they went in, toured. And when they came out, the the streets there were multi-laned and very busy, full of speeding traffic. Uh, No stoplights, just a, a, a roundabout where it would slow people down a little bit. And... And the, uh, the bus was parked on the other side, so they had to cross several lanes of traffic going both directions to get there. And they lined up along the street, and the tour guide jumped out of the bus and said, wait a minute, don't cross one at a time, 
they'll hit you, they'll run you over. But if you cross in a big group, if you bunch up together, they won't hit you because they're scared you'll damage their car. That's a beautiful picture of what togetherness is. Because you see, together we have power and we have influence and we can encourage one another and we can get out in the community and we can draw near to God and, and we can bring hope to a lost and dying, uh, unhopeful world and we can be loved and do good deeds when we pull our resources together and we become all that Christ wants us to be as His church, His body moving forward in this world. Let's pray. God, I thank you today for your word, for your son, for your church. Lord, all these things come together to impact this crazy world we live in. And this world needs these things. This world needs to draw near. It needs hope. And it needs to know the love of Christ and Good deeds need to be done to show people that he's real. And so, Father, I pray that you help us to be a church with a strong sense of togetherness as we go forward in this crazy world we live in, Lord, seeking to bring glory and honor to you and your Son. For it's in his name that we pray and praise today. Amen.